before there were the Cordettes, before Mike Tyson left NES Punch-Out, before even Neil Gaiman, there was E.T.A. Hoffman. Hello and welcome back, everybody. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Burke. And I'm Damian Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird, a podcast where we enjoy and explore whiskey and weird fiction, sometimes even in that order. It's season three, everybody, and this season, it's alive! We're going to be working our way through Promethean Horrors, classic tales of mad science. It's part of the British Library's Tales of the Weird series, and this one's edited by Xavier Aldana Reyes. Each season, we dive into a different volume of this great anthology series of weird stories from yesteryear by mostly obscure authors. And each episode, we bring you a full spoiler discussion of one of those stories. So strap on your safety goggles, set those Bunsen burners to low, because tonight we've got a story for you. Jess is our master story planner, and she's going to tell you what we're reading tonight. We've got The Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman. Excellent. Well, before we dissect that particular story, we've got some bar talk to do. Damien. What's in your glass tonight? Thanks for asking, Padre. I am drinking some. So I just recently took my very first trip outside of central London into the suburbs of England. And uh, in the little town of Wellin, I stayed for a few days and I discovered this really incredible gin from Edinburgh Gin Recipe or Edinburgh Gin Distillery called it. Well, it's it's essentially a flavored gin. It's the rhubarb and ginger liqueur. So because it reaches a certain sugar content, it has to be considered a liqueur, but it's a gin base with rhubarb and real ginger flavoring. I had this with Fever Tree Indian Tonic, and I got to say, like, I'm a big fan of rhubarb in general. Me too. I think it's that tart, tangy kind of awesome component that pairs well with sweet but in this case it's just spice on spice in this case it's tang on tang and i loved it (laughs) i absolutely loved it i drank more than i should have and so before i left in heathrow airport i found a bottle and i had to bring it home so i have i love the smell of good distillery (laughs) i know you do so Edinburgh Gin Dis- Distillery's Rhubarb and Ginger Liqueur with a little Fever Tree Indian Tonic. Boom. Just pour it on ice. You're going to love it. I promise. Uh, as far as what I'm reading, watching, or otherwise, uh, I recently read Mary Roach's Fuzz When Nature Breaks the Law. So I'm a big fan of Mary Roach in general. Me too. She's a humorist who hones in on one topic And interviews the hell out of anyone who's ever been associated with this topic. So she wrote Gulp, all about the human like digestion system system and tasting. She wrote Stiff, about what happens in death. She wrote Spook. She wrote Grunt. She wrote all these like one word titles. And Fuzz is no different. Um, I actually think she wrote a book called Packing for Mars. Yeah, it is. It's about like <laughs> all early work before she figured out the one word title thing. <sighs> no, it's about the social science behind like armies and how to pack and make most efficient your, your ground forces. Grunt could have been about a lot of things. <laughs> I'm sure it could have. But once you see the cover art, Jess, <laughs> I you just Googled it. To- 
whatever. <laughs> anyway, the point is, I think only one of her titles, Packing for Mars, is the only one about space travel and space preparation, has more than one word. But I recently read Fuzz. I don't think it was her strongest outing, but I always love her sense of humor. There is a style that uh, Mary Roach, I think, has sort of established because she's been doing this for a long time that other authors have tried to emulate. And I've read books like cannibalism and uh, just other crazy books about like scientific bases that I'm going to write sort of semi dry, semi humorous approaches on and they don't work, but Mary Roach always nails it. I don't think that fuzz was her best outing, but I will read anything that she publishes from here to eternity. So uh, check out fuzz when nature calls Nice. or when nature, not when nature calls that's Ace Ventura too. Fuzz (laughs) is when nature breaks the law. (laughs) (laughs) Whiskey. Uh, Also, also Ace Ventura too is a fine recommendation. (laughs) That's a a twofer. That's a twofer (laughs) folks. What about you, Jess? Uh, Tonight I am drinking my uh, favorite summer cocktail, which is a, a lemonade shandy, which is um, a PBR tall boy poured into a glass with some lemonade. <laughs> Wait, is it a is it a ball jar? Nope. This everyone, you'd be pleased to know this isn't a real. It's glass. an actual glass. It's a real glass. Oh that. my she goodness! Somebody screen cap this. Yeah. What do we get? Oh my welcome, goodness! Everybody. Oh my goodness! Uh, it's great if it's hot out and you want to have a beer, but you also need some hydration. You can justify having a shandy because it's not just beer. I guess it's delightful. I like the way you think. Yeah. It is delightful. Uh, And I am reading, I've made it through the first two books of the Red Riding Quartet, which is by um, David Peace. It's this very strange set of novels that it's kind of like crime reporting set in the 70s about police corruption. It's really not my normal jam, but the way that he writes is so good and so interesting. Um, like it's the most like frantic writing that sounds exactly like how you think in your head. So rather than it being narrated, like Jessica gets, Jessica gets up to refill her glass because boy, she sure could use another Shandy. And then as she's walking over there, she's, you know, it's just sort of like action words, gets up, goes, get a, goes to get a Shandy. You know, it's just, it's very dynamic writing in a really interesting way. So I'm halfway through the book of four. Um, The first one is 1974. The second one is 1977. I imagine the next two are going to be real similar, Um, but they're great. (laughs) (laughs) If you're looking for something sort of fun and also horrible, right? It's about like, I mean, serial killers and police corruption and torture and all of that stuff, but it's written so well that you can kind of, you know, just so current events. Yeah, it's not, it's not, not current events. I went there. Find me at Damesies. <laughs> Jessica, so you missed just, an opportunity there to turn the word shandy into an action verb, I think. You could have Shandy. Well, uh, just Jessica so you know, there, a shandy, a shandy is a beer mixed specifically with lemonade or lemon lime soda, whereas a Rabbler, which is German for a cyclist, is a beer that's mixed with another hydrating like citrus beverage typically grapefruit or like a, yeah. orange etc there's like ginger those shandies are, th- yeah there's i mean there's ginger shandies but uh, essentially it has to have a lemon component i think original shandies were lemonade or lemon lime well soda, i'd like to like recommend uh using trader joe's lemonade in a carton that's really hitting the spot do it <laughs> do it 
Wonderful. I am not shandying this evening. I'm drinking You're straight lost. bourbon. <laughs> oh, straight oh, bourbon. Okay, that's fine. Hit us I am drinking straight bourbon. Uh, I am having a little Michter's bourbon tonight, which was oh, uh, a gift solid. to me. Yeah, it was a gift to me by uh, a good friend. So uh, thank you for that, Kurt. Thanks, um, Kurt. Not a bottle I would typically buy. It's it's a little bit out of my price range for a typical oh, bottle, well, but it's a thanks, very nice Kurt. bottle of bourbon. It's got heavy <laughs> vanilla. <laughs> heavy thanks vanilla. A lot, Kurt. <laughs> Happy birthday, Mr. President, Kurt. There, there goes my semi-serious attempt at trying to describe this bourbon. Um, it's very sorry. Bourbon-y. It's got Y'all vanilla, try it, sorry, and it's okay, fancy. Right. Yeah, vanilla, cherry wood, <laughs> pepper. It's all. No, nah, Mictor's is solid. It's a good bourbon. I'm drinking it in a glass. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm drinking it in a shoe. <laughs> well, tonight, as you heard, Wait, we are, are you discussing reading? the Sandman. Oh, I beg your pardon. I'm not reading anything. That's not a. That's not true. I'm reading a lot, but I don't have a recommendation <laughs> okay. for a book tonight. Uh, I have a recommendation for another movie. I've been watching, uh, as I think I mentioned last time, I've been watching a lot of Shudder uh, recently. And I watched one of the scariest movies that I have seen in a Ooh. long time. And, and you Damien probably brings both his have fingers seen together and does the yep. whole thing. This, this I, thing. I, uh, this film, friends, um, caused me to take several strolls through the more well-lit areas of the house during Get the course of the it, movie. Get to it, title. <laughs> uh, it's a Spanish film. I believe it's actually Argentine. It's Aterrados, uh, Terrified. Yeah, okay, if you've seen this, wait with the clown. Nope, no. Uh, there's no, no, no. That's terrifying. Oh, that's terrifying. I tried to watch right? that no, one first is... and got very confused and did not think it was scary. Yeah. <laughs> this is a movie about uh, Aterados. That is, is a movie about a neighborhood that suffers from a a haunting of different uh, houses in this neighborhood, uh, all for a, a similar reason that really surprised me at the end, um, and it. Is uh, is told from the perspective of multiple characters who are trying to investigate what is going on, um, but there is some really disturbing imagery in it. Yeah, there's one particular scene that will make me um, rethink breakfast for the rest of my life. Uh, it is it <laughs> is nice. a really scary Teaser. movie, and and like I said, uh, there were several times in which I just had to pause it and convince myself that I needed to go pee or needed to refill my drink or needed to go. We had to hug my to wife, pee, but that's fine. Okay, of those three, I right, was looking for any excuse to get out of that room. So if you're looking for a reason to hug your spouse, friends, I recommend on Shutter the Argentine movie Aterrados. Uh, or terrified in English. What a great recommendation! Right. Thanks, Padre. Now you're welcome. You're well. Maybe you're welcome if 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 you, <laughs> if you survive it. All right. That brings us to our author information section. And I apologize in advance. There are a lot of German and French words that I have to attempt to pronounce in the course of this bio. So I beg your indulgence. Ernst Theodor Amadeus Wilhelm Hoffmann. Or the first author we've covered whose entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica showed up in a Google search only second to Wikipedia. Oh, wow. Was born on January 24th, 1776 in Konigsberg, Prussia. The youngest of three siblings born to a pair of cousins. All right. (laughs) Strong start. (laughs) Young Ernst was raised by his mother, 
his aunts, whom he adored, and an uncle, whom he did not. His father and mother had separated only two years after his birth. In 1794, while employed as a music teacher, he attended to one of his pupils, perhaps too closely. She may or may not have borne his child, and he was dismissed from her employ, from her bed, and from the town altogether. Yikes. That was fine, though, because, yeah, Ernst. Ernst gonna Ernst. That was fine, though, because he would go on to become one of the most influential figures in literature and music of the Romantic period. His pioneering fantasy work, spiced with the macabre, would leave its mark on literally generations of writers. Poe, Gogol, Dickens, MacDonald, Dostoevsky, Kafka, and Hitchcock are all his direct literary descendants. Wow. But his influence didn't stop there. The world of music and dance are in his debt, too. Robert Schumann named his piano suite Chrysleriana after a Hoffman book, and Jacques Offenbach's magnum opus opera Le Contes de Hoffman, or The Tales of Hoffman, (laughs) is based on his stories, including The Sandman. But perhaps most famously, he wrote a story called The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. Oh, Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker, and and this is this is where Hoffman touches literally everybody, right? Yeah. We've all seen that is been news to, we can participated use. in the Nutcracker yes. in some way. That all was right. an ETA Hoffman story, friends. Wow. Uh, another well-known ballet. If you if you like ballet, you may have heard of this one. It's called Coppelia. It's based on the Sandman and is obviously named after one of the principal characters of our story that we'll discuss in a few moments. Hoffman's critique of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony set a new high bar for how music should be written about, and his reviews would go on to become so popular that in his lifetime, they were ultimately collected into a single volume that people bought and and read, just a whole book of music reviews. So he really <laughs> he really brought that to a whole new level. That's That's amazing to me. Yeah, I'm going to do that with my Yelp reviews, by the way. So, I mean, just imagine that, like somebody collecting Damesy's Yelp reviews in a hardback edition, fully illustrated. It'll happen. Publishers, I'm looking for some partners. Hit me up. The Sandman particularly would have a lasting philosophical influence as Sigmund Freud examined it in an essay called Das Unheimlich, or The Uncanny. The Sandman was first published in an 1817 book of stories called Die Nachtstücke, or The Night Pieces, which collected eight of his fantastic stories as a cycle. Hoffman would die young, though, aged only 46, on June 25th, 1844 in Berlin, with syphilis listed as the cause of death. Too soon. Yeah. Maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Syphilis, the great equalizer. (laughs) Didn't it kill Napoleon as well? I think it killed a lot of people, Damien. It killed a lot of people. It killed a lot of fame. (laughs) It did. Uh, Perhaps uh, many too young. The stories we could have gotten out of these folks had they lived. Uh, (laughs) Syphilis, you jerk. 
Had that's, they been a, able that's to, a bumper uh, sticker you can buy on whiskeyintheweird.com, by the way. <laughs> whiskeyintheweird.com. Syphilis, comma, you jerk. Put it on your fiat. All right. That takes us to our summary. Damien, I think you have that for this evening. I do. And let's just preface this, folks. This is a 60-page short story, and it is dense. Okay? So this one's going to be a little bit longer than normal. If you need to fast forward, I would say go eight minutes, maybe nine minutes, and just skip the skip the recap. But it's really worthwhile to listen to my dulcimer tones sharing with you the magic that is Ernst Theodore Amadeus Hoffman, a.k.a. E.T.A. Hoffman's The Sandman. Uh, like a freshman year dorm, this one is all over the place, a little bit funky, and even after you finish, there's still so much to unpack. And before I go further, I want us all to play a game called When Does the Mad Science Come In? All right? All right. Let's go. So Nathaniel is outlining in a letter to his fiance Clara's brother Lothar a story about when he was a kid and his father would entertain this guest who would come over almost every night. It had this mad haberdasher look to him that was reminiscent of, I guess, German folklore's interpretation of the Sandman, right? There are a lot of cultures have the Sandman, but the German interpretation was this old, like wrinkly hunchback guy with gray skin and wiry hair and burning red eyes and this crazy demeanor. And as the legend went, the Sandman would appear for misbehaving or kids who wouldn't go to bed and he would throw or pour sand into their (laughs) eyes, which would cause them to go blind. And then their eyes would fall out. And then he would pick up the eyes and put them in a bag and be like, cool. Thanks so much. See you later. And cackle and like laugh as he went out the door and he went back to his Sandman lair. So that was the German interpretation of the Sandman. So this was told to him by his mother. (laughs) Well, this terrified young Nathaniel, as it would any of the rest of us, and he assumed this guest of his father with his appearance to definitely be the Sandman freaked him out. As it turns out, this person that he was scared of, his name is Coppelius. He's a lawyer friend of Nathaniel's dad. Nathaniel's dad obviously got into some money troubles with him, owed him a little bit of cash. They both had an interest in alchemy. Who does So. This guy, Cabelius, comes over to Nathaniel's house to conduct some alchemical experiments with his dad, and that's how he's paying off the debt. Unfortunately, that's just the way it works. Cash is king, folks. (laughs) Cabelius did not much appreciate Nathaniel screaming his little girly voice off at his like horrendous appearance. And so to everyone's horror, he grabbed Nathaniel after being screamed at and threw to the kid to ground and reached with his little alchemical tongs and pulled out two lumps of glowing coals of something. You know, they're burning everything to try and turn to gold and saying like, I'm going to thrust them in your eye sockets and turn you blind. Your pretty eyes are gone. Your pretty eyes are gone. What we're going to notice folks is that eyes play a key, like significant factor and a heavy symbolism through this entire story. So the dad at this point, please, please don't hurt my son. I know I owe you a lot of money and you can do kind of whatever you want, but please don't hurt my son. And so Coppelia says, okay, fine. I won't. I'll just uh, replace these burning coals in the fire and I will twist his legs and hands off as though they were doll parts until he passes out. And that's what he does. Which is okay. wild. So wild good dude and, and also good not dude. the behavior we expect from lawyers in modern times by the way. <laughs> nay 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 
So this guy keeps coming back almost night after night uh, and acting out these experiments with the father who owes cash, so he can't do anything about it. The wife isn't happy. The son isn't happy. He's still scared. Eventually, about a year later, after the initial experience that Nathaniel has encountering this gentleman, uh, one of the experiments that Coppelius has with Nathaniel's dad results in this smoky explosion that kills Nathaniel's mm-hmm. father. Yep. So after this, Coppelius is like, peace him out, disappears. Nobody knows where he goes. So the question is, is why is Nathaniel telling this story in a letter to Lothar, who is the brother of his fiance, this number of years later? Well, the reason is some guy just appeared in his school where he's studying remotely and totally reminds him of Coppelius. He thinks that Coppelius has come out of hiding and is pretty much stalking him at his new school. And so because of this, he wants revenge. All right. Now, remember the game? Like, where does the mad science come in? Alchemy is bad science, right? But it's not mad science. So are we there yet? No, not yet. Okay. So then the second part of this story is we jump into a reply that's actually written by Clara, who is Nathaniel's fiance. And... Lothar's sister saying, Hey, you accidentally addressed this letter to me. Ha ha ha. Um, that was fun. Uh, yeah, it was to Lothar. Why are you rating Lothar so much? We'll dive into that in just a bit. Sorry. I read it, but Hey, because I read it, maybe you should probably put this guy Coppelius out of your memory. I just think that you may have imagined him. I don't know. I don't think he's real. He's living rent free in your head. I love you. Please get some sleep. Move this guy out of your brain. Next section is actually where Nathaniel, after getting this letter from his fiance, writes back to Lothar, her brother, and is like, oh, hey, sorry. This letter was meant for you. Um, <laughs> like, LOL, JK, this guy, Coppola, who showed up, who I thought was Coppelius, right? At my school, it's not him, all right? I was getting a little cray-cray because of my childhood trauma. Uh, Coppelius is obviously a German name, whereas Coppola is Italian, so two different people. Also, I have this physics professor. Uh, His name is Spallanzani, and he vouches for Coppola, and he says he's a good guy. This guy's legit. He makes... Yeah, he makes like barometers and weird, like, you know, temperature and pressure sensitive materials and visual aids and that sort of. Yeah, yeah. But he also, like, side note, Lothar, because we down, we bros, he's got a pretty hard daughter. And I've seen her a few times, but not too much. Uh, her name's Olympia. And I don't know. I still love your sister, though. LOL. Like, we're going to get married. Ha ha ha. Okay, so any science there? No. All right, next section. This third letter brings us to the present day. And in the present day, Nate, I'm going to call him Nate. It's Nathaniel. He basically returns <laughs> home from school. I think we've reached we've reached that level of familiarity. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're confident. We're, we're confident. Friends. Yeah, we're, we're all pals here. Uh, so he goes home from school just before starting his final year, and he just regales in his reunion with Clara and with Clara's brother. Seriously, what is going on here? Lothar is always there. Like, who's he actually engaged to? Let's talk about this. 
Uh, anyway, he sees both of them. He soon forgets about Coppola and the haunting like memories that Coppola brings up, but not entirely because after he gets home and he thinks that everything's well and good, he starts like obsessing over Coppola. Are you Coppelius? Who are you? What's going on? I'm starting to get emo. I'm turning into like something corporate. I'm turning into like, <laughs> uh, I'm, turning in, I'm, I'm turning into like the, my chemical romance fan. And I just, I can't shake this. Right. He gets, he's drooping around the house. He's like walking with sullen shoulders. He's, he, he becomes obsessed with like this conspiracy that Coppola is actually, or Coppola is actually Coppelius. He, nobody can shake him out of it. He basically goes full uh, mailroom Charlie mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. you all. You, oh, it's yeah. always Sunny fans. Yeah, he's he's like who's Pepe Silvia? You know that's him at this stage. He even at this stage writes a really creepy poem uh, with Clara in it, getting this like burning eyes syndrome basically. And I know that Ryan really likes burning eye ghosts, right? That's oh, your yeah. favorite kind of ghost, and ones with flaming eyes. We are anyway. Still so here. he writes this poem where Clara. Uh, is is essentially like he's exonerating his love for her and he's saying your flaming eyes are drops on her heart and it's blood and all this sort of weird allegorical crap. Uh, Clara is not impressed. Let's just put it that way. And she is bored with it. Her aloof reaction has him calling her, quote, an inanimate, accursed automaton. Automatons science right so are we at the bad science part is she an automaton anyway no because she runs off she's crying at this criticism she's crying in a very non-automaton way and who does she cry to her brother lothar who comes back and is like why are you making my sister mad to nathaniel they start to get into an almost fight until claire's like everyone just just be cool just be cool everyone and so nathaniel admits that he's probably losing it he's really holding on to this childhood trauma Clara forgives him. They move on. Where is the science? We're like two thirds of the way through the story. Where is the science? I don't know. It's mad science, Promethean horrors. Let's continue. Nathaniel goes back to school after going back and reinvigorating his love for Clara, goes back to school for his final year. And in a surprisingly underwhelming revelation, his house has been burnt down <laughs> and all of his belongings are destroyed. Nobody. Well, okay, I think so his like, friend got like some books out. There's he maybe had sure. some books. Thanks for my books. Was that, was that Sigismund, his friend Sigismund, because he's a good pal. Uh, But he basically got nothing else. He needs to find temporary lodging. Where is this temporary lodging? You ask. It happens to be in a unit right across from Spallanzani's house. Oh, what? Is this fate? Is this coincident? I don't know. Spallanzani again is his physics professor who vouched for Coppola. Remember? Anyway, he immediately sets up in his house and starts looking out his window, and guess who he sees? He's got a clear view right into Olympia's bedroom window. He's checking her out on the nightly. He's eyeballing her. He's getting real. I mean, this is going back to one of our formative stories over a poisonous garden, but I won't even go there. Um, And he is. I won't. So he's getting super creepy at this stage. He just notices that she's so beautiful. This is Olympia, by the way. So beautiful, standing in her bedroom window, kind of staring out, but she doesn't move. She doesn't look around. She's just there. But he's okay with that because she's pretty. Oh, Typical she's bro. so pretty. So hot. So hot. Anyway, as if coerced by Faith, Coppola walking down the street 
one day. He's trying to sell off his wares, right? And he's making barometers and spy glasses and magnifying glasses, that sort of thing. He starts th- like crowing on about how he's selling all of his good stuff. And Nathaniel, upon hearing his pitches, which are more around pretty eyes, pretty eyes, pretty eyes, flashes back to his Coppelius trauma when he was a kid. And he goes absolutely ape cray on Coppelius. He leaves his house. He goes out. He beats him up. He snaps out of it, realizing, no, this is just a bad memory. He buys, he gets really guilty about it and ends up buying like a pirate's telescope, like a spyglass, you know, one of those extendable spyglasses things. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm going to take this thing. Here is some cash. He goes back into his house, goes up to his window, uses a spyglass to get a little bit closer look of Olympia across the street. He's a total dirtbag. But magnification, that's science, right? Magnification is science, right? I it think is so. in fact okay. Yes, but is it mad science? I don't know. So Depends there's a bit of conflict like going everything. on as Nate, as Nate, essentially at this point, like you remember, he's betrothed to Clara, but he has to convince himself that he's still Olympia. madly in love with her. Yeah, even though he's basically obsessing over Olympia, this sterile character who's very mysterious and lives across the street and basically stands in a window. Do we know she's his faithfulness yet? is at this point? <laughs> further tested? When he gets invited along with his entire class to go meet Olympia at a big party at his professor's house at uh, at Spallanzani's house. So this invite goes out. He attends. He gets to be close to her. Spallanzani presents her in this big like flourish. She plays like a cello. I don't know. She plays like a bassoon. She plays like all these musical <laughs> the instruments. Instrument. And really double reads. Dazzles double reads the crowd. Yeah. Crazy. That's sexy, sexy bassoon. Anyway, so she's like dazzling the cl- crowd. She comes down and she like catches our man Nate's eye. They dance and Nathaniel is like, holy cow, she is super fluid. All of her movements are almost mechanical. All right. He is just absolutely entranced by her. So he's super smitten. They're dancing. He's having a great time. Spal and Zanny, by the way, at this point, is especially accommodating to have the two of them hang out together after this momentous meet and greet. And so they do. And in this time, Nathaniel reads her a bunch of his poetry that he writes and his stories and probably his, like, I don't know, his his Reddit posts, I'm sure, that she's, like, really getting into. But the way that she's getting into it is she just sits there and sort of blankly looks at him and says like, ah, ah. And he thinks that that is absolute (laughs) adoration Uh, because she doesn't say much, but she listens. Right. So that's great for him. He's thrilled that she's listening because it's something Claire never did. So Nate decides that's it. I know I'm engaged to Clara, but this girl gets me. I'm going to marry Olympia. So he arrives at her house one day, maybe brought a bouquet of flowers. I don't know. Maybe a box of chocolates, maybe a mixtape. Anyway, he shows up at her house, (laughs) only she's not there. And he's looking around for her and he overhears this verbal battle going on between who he knows to be her dad, Spallanzani, and another voice that is strangely familiar. And then when he thinks about it, he actually remembers that's Coppelius. Copelius from my childhood nightmares. So he kicks open a door to a room and he sees Spallanzani and Coppola. <laughs> kicks open the door. Yeah, he does. He says it's, 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 it's a cacao. Uh, and then he's, he sees Spallanzani and Coppola and they're arguing. 
and they're holding Spallanzani's holding the shoulders and Coppola's holding the legs of his beloved Olympia whose body what? is limp and seemingly lifeless and he is freaked out also she has no eyes yeah, by the way that's part of it and so he goes into <laughs> an absolute traumatic response they're having this weird argument one of them is talking about who is responsible for the clockwork and the other is talking about who is responsible for the eyes nate goes into absolute shock at this moment coppola trauma seizes on, on the opportunity coppola slash coppola seizes on the opportunity yanks olympia's body away her arm slaps her dad across the face kind of stuns him a little bit uh coppelius throws him throws her over his shoulder and goes running off disappears okay okay at this point uh uh um um spallanzani is just like you gotta go get her she's 20 years worth of work and then at this point like he realizes nate realizes this isn't a daughter he's talking about that's 20 years old. It's an automaton. She's the automaton, uh, y'all. This is the mad science part of the story. There's the science. There's D, the I science. Found I found it. <laughs> so she's the science. She is an automaton. And he's like, you got to go get her back from my trader, a science partner who obviously fabricated her beautiful glassy eyes. So Nate sees these glassy eyes perfectly sitting like covered in blood i, I didn't guess, get like, that either. I don't know, fabricated <laughs> blood yeah that were on the ground and he picks them up and obviously eyes are a big thing for nate right so he sees these eyes it elicits all these horrific memories and he flies off he goes to the professor he chokes him he throws him up against the wall he's like you dirty bastard and he's they're making a lot of noise it draws the attention of a bunch of students and his big burly bestie sigismund who's been a friend through all of this comes in sort of struggle, sort of, uh, you know, chokes him away from the professor. He's like, you've gone too far. Nate is sent to an asylum because he's crazy. I mean, he's crazy at this point, right? All right. You think the story's over? It's not. Coppola disappears with Olympia and soon everyone comes to find out the truth about Olympia, that she's an automaton. Sigismund and the rest of Nate's pals were just like, yeah, we knew this the whole time. We're not stupid. Like, how could you be so dumb? Like, she was she was obviously a robot. But obviously, anyway, under, point under, is, is Nathaniel didn't know this. He was blinded by love. He spent some time getting well. He leaves his asylum. He shakes off his history, gets back together with Clara, and appears to be on the upswing. So they're living in the countryside. He's away from school. Everything seems well. They visit an idyllic countryside town one day and decide there's this big spire at the top of the church. We're going to go get a better view of the whole town from the church's steeple. And so they go up there, shimmy, shimmy, shimmy. And Clara goes, Oh look, honey, there's something moving in that tree or bush over there or whatever. And Nate not seeing it directly whips out his old spyglass that he got from Coppola stretches the thing out and takes Mm -hmm. a look. And when he does, he looks, he points it over toward his fiance to say like, oh, I can't see what you're talking about. And when he sees Clara at the end of the lens, he flashes back to the fact that it's not Olympia and he goes into a psychotic episode again. Um, he basically thinks of Olympia. He calls Clara a wooden doll. There's a lot of like dance in the fire stuff that he talks about. And with, in a with fit his of madness, instrument elongated here. Yeah, with his <laughs> instrument elongated. Thank you very much. And he goes back into his madness. And in this moment, he tries to essentially throw Clara off the railing for ruining his life because he thinks it's Olympia. Loth- Lothar is, of course, there because he's always there. What is going on, Lothar? <laughs> 
he's there. He saves the day again. He basically separates Nathaniel from Clara, but not before <laughs> Copelius, who appears in the crowd below spectating, shouts out. He's freaking there. He just shows up and he shouts out from mm-hmm. the crowd. Pretty eyes, pretty eyes, which is pretty much a trigger phrase. That's not for weird at all. Nathaniel. <laughs> and Nathaniel loses all of his mind grapes decides this is it he's in complete insanity he jumps over the rail and falls to his death smashing his brains open on the ground below the end oh wait no actually not the end because there is a definite final paragraph where clara is outlined as someone who's who's married someone else and has like all sons and she's living the peaceful life she always deserved now the end now the end great work wow (laughs) wow well, a lot that of action to my 17th whiskey and <laughs> the discussion period. I told you this was going to be a little right? bit of a longer wow. take. Wow. Is this, it's, it's not, it's not that this is such a long story folks, because really like a, a 50 or 60 page story is a standard like novella length. Like we can all handle this. It's this story dense. is so packed. It is so packed. And we are going to uh, attempt to dissect part of it. Um, I want to say up front that this story is so packed that we are not going to get to everything that is contained in this story. No, nah, read all. it, folks. Read in it. In this podcast, you do need to read this story and you probably need to read it more than once. Um, but what I'd like to start with for my 17th whiskey and our discussion period is a question of emotion. Like, at the end of reading the story, how did this make you feel? What emotion were you left with at its conclusion? Happy for Clara. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica hates anyone that isn't Clara. Yep, we're team so Clara here. So Jessica, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I feel overwhelmed at the end of the story. I have to say, I, I mean, I read it. I was aware, I, I didn't know fully, but I was aware of the story's sort of import in the pedagogy and the pedigree of weird fiction. Mm-hmm. So I knew that it was like, this was a, like, this is a story that if you like weird fiction, you should read. I was aware of that. And I finished the story. I was like, what the heck did I just read? What was this about? I don't, there was letters, it was epistolary, and then it wasn't. <laughs> For part so of it, yeah. I, right? Yeah, like, it, was, was, it was a wild ride. I, I I ended the story on my first reading of it confused um, and and feeling overwhelmed. Like there was obviously, the, the dialogue is, is a clear picture of this. It was obviously very symbolic, and I wasn't picking up on on everything that it was laying down immediately i don't know yeah. damien what did what did you feel i i mean i thought the actual writing style and i'm sure we'll talk about this was a little more hawthornian that i then mm-hmm. i appreciate or maybe like victor hugo where there's a lot of expansive like expositions on you know how someone's feeling at a given time and the thing is is though even with that and being able to chop out like two-thirds of the pages it's still such a dense story. Yeah, it's still yeah. such a multifaceted story. 
that you can't ignore all these key components and how they overlap and the over like i mean the it's drenched in symbolism as a matter of fact there's a character there's like a professor that talks about how everything is an allegory and everybody's like okay it's a little too obvious yeah so it, it was kind of crazy but that being said like i never knew where the tale was going and i never knew like I wasn't joking when I said like, find the science in this because I was reading this thing the entire time going Mm -hmm. like when Mm -hmm. the, the the title of the story is the Sandman and the Sandman only occupies the first, (laughs) right. You know, like third of the story and then is referential after that. Yeah, exactly. So it's just absolutely insane to me. It was insane. It was all over the place, but it was so compelling. And particularly because like, like we, we know we, we do not follow the editor's intended order of stories. Right. We, we right. cover we them in a different around. order. Uh, and we do that on uh, for a particular purpose. Whether it's a good purpose or a bad purpose is probably up for you to decide. But um, this is the lead story of this collection. Yeah. And, and, and this collection seems to be ordered in chronological order of publication. So that makes sense. This is published in the early 1800s. Um, but being the lead story, like we are bouncing around this story from epistolary format to narrative format to dialogue. We don't know what's going on, who's who. And, and, and as Damien is so eloquently placed, where is the weird science in this story? It, it, it did not reveal itself with ease. I, I guess that's the way I'll put it. Yeah. And for being a story that's, you know, 200 years old, 200 plus like that is awesome that mm-hmm, I can read it mm-hmm. in the modern day and look back and say, holy cow, this kept me, this kept me completely entranced. And I've read a bunch of short stories and novels and seen pieces of media that deal with automatons and, you know, how they cross the threshold into comfort levels and confuse living beings. I mean, right. we'd be dumb not to mention, you know, do androids dream of electric sheep and other similar ilk from the dick, you know, like library, the nice dick foreshadowing, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but this was something that was like, wow, wow. It really en- enraptured me and encaptivated me with regards to the actual story itself, because I mm-hmm. never knew where it was going to go. And every no, time I, I thought either. it was over, there was another 10 pages, five pages, et cetera. <laughs> Right, so. and and what's so amazing about it is is that it, you're not the only one that it's 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 encapsulated in its charms, right? Like this is right. one of of all the stories that we have covered on Whiskey and the Weird. This is our third season. It's one of the most, if not the most, single influential stories that we've discussed by an author that nobody knows about, right? Which is amazing, given given his his right. bibliography that we've rehearsed here right. but i mean it, it it is just it's just incredible all that this story does in its 50 or 60 pages with limited explication i, I like this this story always kept me guessing always kept jess, me guessing jess what's up just thinking <laughs> All right, Jess. Given that you're thinking, I'll turn to you for our for our next question. Then nice. I'm all I'll turn queued to you up immediately. So, like, of all the things that stand out about this story, one of the things that stands out immediately is its structure. 
How did its structure affect your reading, Jessica? Uh, ig- ignoring the weird, like curly straw figures that Damien is putting on screen right now. Which, I think it was which, a plan. Okay. We gotta make each other smile. <laughs> we gotta make each other smile. <laughs> we are. Uh, we have never struggled for that. H- how does the structure of this story affect your reading and understanding? I feel like it shouldn't work, and it really, really works. So the letters okay. are okay. long. Right, but and, they don't stay letters. Like it turns right, to a right. narrative. Actually. So you start yeah. out with these letters that are like setting setting you up for everything, and it's one long letter to the wrong person, and then one long rebuttal, and the rebuttal is pages and pages of just Clara being like, "Hey, you need to chill out. I just, I mean, you need to drink a <laughs> glass of water. You know, like just be cool. Oh, we all do. And then there's another letter. Yeah, and then it switches to someone else retelling it. It feels like a story that should have either stuck with letters or just stuck with a narrator. But for whatever reason, mm-hmm. it's fine. I had no issues it with it. It doesn't, and it yeah. works. Yeah. I yeah. noticed yeah. it. I, you know, like I was like, okay, oh, we're done with the letters. This is fine. Maybe we'll go back to them. We don't. So it feels like something where it shouldn't work as well as it does. It feels like it could have been a mess, and I don't think it is. I See, I think it was intentional because I think using uh, the apostolary format as a, like, Here's leading up to like previously in you know the Sandman, <laughs> it was a, a super effective way to do it because I think it was about a third of the pages dedicated to the letter exchange. You know, a third of that was Clara being like, "Oops, you addressed this to the wrong person." <laughs> wrong person. Just like, yeah. "Here's who I am. I'm your fiance. Like, get get this out of your head. You probably imagined it. Like, basically questioning Nathaniel's sanity." And then going to the actual response, which leads you to the present day. And I think that that was super effective because it gave us background in a way that was real. Yeah. It gave us the background in the way that was like, I love the fact that start off with the story that you're like, what the hell is the story about? What does it have to do with anything? And then at the end of the letter, he says, by the way, why is this important? It's because I just bumped into this guy Coppola. And I think that this is actually this guy Coppelius who I met when I was a kid who tortured me. Until I passed out uh, under my parents' supervision. <laughs> like, and I thought that that was super, super effective and really weird, but it's effective it and us- weird and also child abuse. Yes, <laughs> also child abuse. Sure, but it sure, dropped sure. us, it dropped us in, it dropped us in a scenario where we were like, what is going on? Okay, this is the title of the story. Is this what we're going to pursue? Nah. And the answer is no. <laughs> not we're really. not pursuing this. <laughs> right, we're going in a right. totally divergent direction. The title is meaningless in this, which makes it entirely compelling, right? Like, I mean, at and that yes. point, you are, you are yes. like, like that's yes. not what we're talking about. What the hell are we talking right. about? I am reading and then, on. Then you're hooked. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're hooked. Yeah. It's like a BuzzFeed article. You get hooked well, because the title is nothing dealing with the actual <laughs> content. And I think it's really the best way to illustrate kind of our bud Nate's like spiraling when you get to see it from different perspectives. Right. So you see his letter where he's just like, Hey, here's a weird story that maybe happened, maybe didn't, but I'm still haunted by it. Here's what's going on now. Might be real, might not be. And then you get the girlfriend's perspective, which is just like, Hey, you've always been pretty normal and now you're not. So I'm a little worried. Let's uh, chill Mm -hmm. for a little Mm -hmm. bit. And then you get the kind of rebuttal where it's like, Oh, okay. I I guess I'm going to, you know, not think about it. Great advice. Love Clara. What a what a wonderful one. <laughs> um, and then the next section. She's very forgiving because they go through like three pretty severe breakups yeah. in the entire story. And then the next section is 
outsider view describing Nathaniel's breakdown where he's, uh, even when he's at home with Clara and he's like writing these weird manifesto poems and he's trying to just like lecture her and read her poetry. And she's just like, I need to sew. I need to knit. You need to not bother me. (laughs) So just seeing that spiral from a different perspective of like, okay, he's becoming unhinged and we haven't even gotten to the doll lady yet. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a ton of spiraling madness <laughs> that this story invites us into. Uh, and and before we get to that, I, I just want to touch on what did you guys think about the writing in general? What what left an Super effective upon you? Like I'll just jump in here and be like, I was you know, I don't know anything about estimated time of arrival, uh Hoffman, but <laughs> I will say that this this tale, like Make it, it's hard, I guess it's hard to sit back and isolate because I think in a in a different application I could write off this writing style as just like middle of the road, mm-hmm. but the way that it was applied in this story and again like I'm not a huge fan of Hugoian Hawthorne like, extended and Hawthornean extended like monologues. I mean they both do it right. Hugo does it in Hunchback in Notre Dame with like Claude Froyo who just sits there and takes ten pages to talk about why he's in love with Esmeralda and it's just like shut up man move on. <laughs> and Hawthorne does the same thing in Scarlet Letter. But I I was just like I can look past this because the arc of this story and all the different elements and all the different throwbacks that it has by its finish. I write off the sort of flowery prose and Mm -hmm. say, man, this was just a heck of a story. It really was. And so that to me rides higher than the actual writing style. I think writing style, if this were a different story arc, if there, if this, if I was reading this with a different theme and it was something similar to, you know, our past few stories that we've written and or or that we've covered, including blue laboratory and whatnot, it was just like, ah, well, whatever kind of point A to point B, this had so many levels and so many tiers and it was drenched in so many different literary elements that Mm, it gave mm -hmm, it those extra mm -hmm. points. So the writing to me was almost secondary. When I was reading it, you know, like a book, the first couple of times I read it, uh, it, (laughs) like a book, like I'm a pretty quick reader. And so for me, I can read dialogue at the speed that I read dialogue. I listened to it as the audiobook version of it today when I was uh, where we are, renovating our bathroom. Oh, interesting. I'm okay. renovating okay. my bathroom and I'm listening to the audiobook version of it. So then you are like, instead of reading it pretty quickly, you are listening to the dialogue at dialogue pace. Then I started sure. to get annoyed because I was like, oh my God, okay, <laughs> we are going over the same thing a lot. And so it was interesting, the different formats, whereas reading it, fine. You know, like mm-hmm, it wasn't mm-hmm. my, I wasn't just like, oh my God, this writing is beautiful. But I, I read it and I enjoyed it. And then listening to someone else read it, I was like, okay, we gotta, we gotta cut 40% of this. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think like, like this this is written at a time where the where the narrative style is not my favorite. Like I really okay. Fair. don't like like this this was written before Rappuccini's Daughter, but it was translated into English in the same year that Rappuccini's okay. Daughter was was published. So it's that early 19th century period. This is one of my least favorite periods of writing. Uh I in, in some of the exposition, I was like, can we please just move on from this? Where this story stood out for me in the writing was in the dialogue. Because the dialogue yeah. 
um, even though it was rare, right? It was it was pretty rare. Uh, in particular, the dialogue, the exclamations. There's a lot of exclamation yeah. points in this story, <laughs> right? They were they were very often unsettling, and they were single words or just paired words. Uh, the eyes, the eyes! Yeah. Exclamation point. They were they were almost more ideas than they ideas that were sort of put into words than they were sentences. Um, and I I really found that effective in reflecting back on it. In reading it, I was like, okay, you've said a couple of words. You've said a couple <laughs> of things. Like this 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 doesn't remind me of anything but but like the emergency room at the worst period of the day. Uh, why why are you exclaiming these things? And then when I would think back on it, I would think like Oh, that was really mood setting. I mm-hmm. really get the symbolism of that, or, or at least I understand that there is symbolism there that I am supposed to get. Uh, and, and so I, I would think, that in terms of the writing, the dialogue is what stuck out to me, even though it was fairly infrequent. All right. Well, then turning now to some of the plot pieces, what did you think on page seventeen? of the nanny's description of the Sandman. And on page 17, for those of you uh, who don't have the book, that's like page three of the story. Uh, I'm just going to read this quote because I want you all to be with us uh, when when we discuss this. It says this. Do you not know that yet? He is a wicked man who comes to children when they will not go to bed and throws a handful of sand into their eyes so that they start bleeding out of their heads. These eyes he puts in a bag and carries them to the half moon to feed his own children, who sit in the nest up yonder and have crooked beaks like owls, (laughs) with which they may pick up the eyes of the naughty human children. So hearing that quote, reading that quote... (laughs) How does that set up your expectations for this story? Again, this is this is on like page three of the narrative, page seventeen of the book. Were those expectations yeah, you know met? Right, but at the end of the day, like lore is going to lore, you know, <laughs> legends going to legend. Like parents will do anything that they That's can. That's a hell of a legend. Let's just put it out there. Yeah, but I mean, look at Krampus. Look at all these like originator tales. Most of them hover around the fact that people are not necessarily or these entities, these spiritual entities or these supernatural entities were not good to kids. <laughs> no, but the like fact in that my Sam house, like extra oh, visceral like fairy comes and head. brings you money when you lose your tooth. Like it's I good. Mean, but even that's like, this creepy. is not a good fairy. Well, it's creepy, no, the, but not to the child who's like, look, five bucks. And that's the thing is that at the end of the day, like the negatives, like Krampus coming along and throwing naughty kids into their pack and then <laughs> sending them off. It's just like, ha ha ha. That's funny. Krampus. Don't get caught by Krampus. I think that there is a propensity for children to believe in positive lore and eschew negative lore. Okay. And so when this nanny is telling the story to the kids, it's under the assumption that they're going to take this into some consideration when it comes to how, how it affects their behavior. But at the end of the day, it isn't actually like something that's meant to terrify them or meant for them to actually Mm -hmm. believe it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. 
And so I didn't read it anything deeper than just regaling lore as lore was meant to be regaled. Jess, what about you? I mean, it's it's creepy. It's a creepy thing to tell a child, right? Like, hey, you better go to yeah. sleep. Or imminently someone's going to throw sand in your eyes. And then this, right? Like, normally I feel like, you know, you have to be good because of the... Uh, What's that thing? Elf on a shelf. You know, that guy. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> like the American Which version. Which we've avoided in my household <laughs> mercifully for low these many years. But like that's that's the Americanized real watered down version of this, right? Like something's right. watching yes. you. You have to be yes. good. It's probably not going to eat your eyes, but I guess we don't know that for sure. I don't know. I, I feel like I, I really liked this this description. It was super creepy. It's it set up an expectation for creepiness that wasn't totally meted out by the story, but that was okay for me because the story went in a different direction. I, it it was just interesting. It was uh, like clearly this is this is an image of the Sandman that that Hoffman has in his background. He wants to write a story about it, but the story goes off the rails from that. <laughs> In, in a much better direction, a much more yeah. symbolic direction. I'll agree. But, you know, at the end of the day, the the outline that he paints of, you know, through the nanny of the Sandman is this terrifying existential creature mm -hmm. that is embodied by this real life corporeal person who right. is coming into his house every day. And so it sets and, and the kills stage his father. To, <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah, know, probably. Maybe. But at the end of the day, it basically sets the standard of this is the root of all of your terror mm -hmm, through your mm -hmm. upbringing. This is the root, and he can never escape it. He can't Coppola leave it. He can't up. leave it. Nope. Yeah. And then even to his dying moments, Coppelius is in the crowd shouting, you know, pretty eyes, pretty eyes, and sending him over the edge. Like, this right. is an omen. It's a, it's a devious demon. It's an intrusive spirit. It's whoever it is. It's never explained, but it's pervasive. And to set it up as like this iconic folklore villain, right. I think was story. a brilliant yeah. start for the story. Yeah, and we'll and we'll come back to to Coppola in a in a moment. Um, as I said in the author bio. Freud wrote this whole essay called The Uncanny in which he explicates this story. And in that essay, he says that The Uncanny, and this is a quote, should be frightening precisely because it is unknown and unfamiliar. And that intellectual uncertainty is at the heart of that. How do the two of you see that playing out in this story the the, the uncanny the un is frightening because it's both unknown and unfamiliar and that at the heart of that is intellectual uncertainty so i think we see that let's i want to talk about the doll lady i think we see that okay. in the doll playing out a mm -hmm. lot mm -hmm. earlier than our bud nate does right like i think we recognize right. earlier that there's something wrong with this, but it it's a humanoid lady, right? We sure spend a lot of time talking about her hot bod. So we know that she's a beautiful <laughs> woman. 
and she can dance and she can sing and I plays the bassoon I think we are going with uh, <laughs> the sexiest instrument um but it doesn't match up with the other things that a human woman would do like mm-hmm. talk or have opinions or, or move around the room <laughs> look at <laughs> look at a different thing sometimes and so that for the reader is is I think where it gets into that like okay I know that this is sort of a woman character but I know that there's something off and then the payoff for that is okay she's a a clockwork doll essentially and I think that's very fun like to me that's kind of the more fun uncanniness mm-hmm. of the story I think for the fact that this was a 120 year old story it's pretty spot on with regards to one misogynistic views in society. (laughs) Oh, we got that. Yep. (laughs) Honestly. And two, how easily like befuddled we are by technological advancements that we refuse to accept as a reality. So we put them in this Mm -hmm. uncanny Valley. So I thought it was very prescient and because of that, yeah, the story sure. was extra sticky to me. Yeah, I thought it was weirdly contemporary. Uh, yeah, very much so. <laughs> I, I think that's this lasting power is that each generation has found this story weirdly contemporary. Yeah. Uh, Freud in his essay talks about how the uncanny is related to the idea that something might be animate or inanimate and that is weird. Uh, but more than that, it's that... Um, there's this inherent fear in children of the loss of a limb and particularly injury to, or the loss of the eyes. And, and Freud goes here, right? As Freud does. He sure does. Right? Because (laughs) the eyes are then a a symbol for the male member. He says male member. Right? (laughs) Male member, right? That the, that the injury to or loss of the eyes is symbolic of, of injury to or loss of the penis, right? So one of the other regions in which Freud identifies uncanniness is with this whole idea of a double. And it look, if you're interested in this, there's a great short story collection that has recently been published, I think as recently as 2019 by uh, Sam Muller called Twice Told, uh, Stories of Doubles. I may be misquoting the title, but it's it's basically stories of of doppelgangers. Uh, I've read a number of stories, and it, it's a lot of fun. But um, can we talk but, about how doppelgangers are German Germanically defined as like evil twins? We, we like when you refer to a doppelganger about that. When you refer to a doppelganger, when you refer to a doppelganger, it's someone who's the evil version of you. Yeah, and that's and that's what Freud gets into in his discussion of of Hoffman's The Sandman, is that there is this doppelganger story going on, and that very much plays into his sense of the uncanny. Uh, is Coppola and Coppelius the same person? And if well, yeah, they, they are, are, who is that person? Is that person the devil? And I'm going to argue very strongly in favor of the interpretation that Coppola Capellius is the devil based on one of the last lines of the story (laughs) when Capellius says, oh, 
he'll jump. You'll see in a minute. Yeah. In a yeah. Minute totally predictive. Right. Yeah. 100%. This has been like a um, demonic or <laughs> satanic, like uh, uh, haunting. And there is no feasible way that an actual human being could be in all these places where Nathaniel found himself like subject to influence. So that's pretty painfully obvious. Well, uh, the, the, uh, oh, uh, Jess, uh, what's okay. up? Okay, yes, sure, could be the devil, could be a guy who's you know all over the place, or Nathaniel could just be imagining all of this stuff. Right? He has one bad experience. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not against this. Well, that, I mean, that's the power of the story, right? It could be this yeah. or that. He has one bad experience with this real bad guy who like twists all his limbs. And then from there, it turns into this other random creepy guy he sees. Oh, it's definitely got to be this guy. You know, and then that he shows back up at the end, you know, as he's looking out of his you know, spyglass thing, he just happens to see like the field of view on these things are is very narrow. You don't just randomly. Right. But he turns over and looks at his wife because she's probably like, it's over there. The bush is over there. <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, oh, I, did anybody you're else not get the Olympia? impression he was using it backwards? Like, like when he sees his wife, it's like, oh, no, no, no flip it around, right. dude. Like, they can't be. Why are you so tiny and far away? Oh, God, got to jump. Got to jump. Yeah, I'm going to lean into that interpretation. I'm going with full spiral for Nathaniel. That a lot of this is just in his head. He can't cope. It 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 very well could be. And, and I appreciate that interpretation. If you're interested in the concept of the uncanny, check out the podcast Weird Studies, particularly episode 86, which discusses the Sandman. Well, look, this story is obviously hugely influential. Are there particular pieces of fiction or, or film even or any kind of media, I'll, I'll say, that you might see in a different light after reading the Sandman? No, God, that was that was definitive. Cool. Thank you. So uh, the newest season of Westworld is on. I think it's mm-hmm. close to done. I'm not quite caught up on it. But if you haven't watched Westworld, this won't matter. But the plot of it is basically an amusement park staffed by, you know, android humans, and you can't always tell who is who. Right. And uh, right. just the way that they kind of like move and interact is always really interesting. Um, and I thought about that a lot when I was reading this, particularly in the scenes where in Westworld, the robots have to like, you can shoot at the robots and you can kill the robots if you want. It's like a wild west amusement park. Right. But then the robots mm-hmm. need to be repaired. And so they're turned off while they're being repaired, but they're still very human. But the way that they're filmed, it's very obvious that they are completely frozen. And it's it's a real like weird thing to look at for the first few episodes before you get used to how they're filming it, that it's just a human body completely still in a weird pose while they're like repairing something. Um and so that was sort of the when it's it's very weird. It's very unsettling to to see. I agree. Um, when she's just sitting in her house, staring out the window, like basically just sort of oh, turned yeah. off. All right, that takes us to our whiskey ratings. This is how we rate stories here on whiskey and the weird from zero to five fingers or the coveted full fist of whiskey. Damien, 
What are you going to rate the Sandman by ETA Hoffman? Giving it to me. Look, y'all, I love this story. I loved it. Four and a half fingers. Whoa, Done. four and a half. Jessica, what about you? I wrote Did down a agree? five. I really like this. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think Wolfist. the story's compelling. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> the characters are the terrible ones. Terrible things happen to, you know, like the good ones get married and go to live on a farm or whatever happens at the end to Clara. Um, I Yeah, the writing's compelling. The story's fun. You know, I love a creepy android, I guess. So, yeah, we're going with a five. <laughs> wow. So sweet. I, I, I feel embarrassed at this point coming in with the low rating here of four fingers Oof. of whiskey. We got four. Get out of our life. Hater. We got a full fist. Like, I'm, a f- I'm, I'm four fingers here. Like- I mean, I got to say that Jessica's five fingers of whiskey. I, was this a first? Have we had a five this finger is the, rating? This is the first fist of whiskey we've had in this season. In this season, for, for sure. sure. I mean, that and is incredible. I thought I thought, I thought I was shooting high for four and a half, but Jessica no, won't like me. I like this one. Great job. I uh, guess I'm, I mean, the, it was I'm the little man of the totem pole here coming at four fingers. Like this style of writing really got in the way for me. This is my least favorite style of writing. This sort of overly <sighs> expository, like declarative, like this is what happened. And let me tell you eight ways. <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't deal with it. Uh, the dialogue saved it a little bit. The dialogue was amazing in how, metaphoric and symbolic it was like like i said earlier it wasn't even whole sentences it was just images given as dialogue and that really is what stuck out for me as i continue to think about the story and then uh what what raised it for me i was thinking like okay like three three and a half fingers of whiskey what raises the four fingers of whiskey for me is how influential the story was. And the more I thought about it, the more I talked about it, the more I read about it even, um, the more important the story became for me. And I understand its place in the canon of weird fiction. So I'm going with Four Fingers of Whiskey, uh, which I'm I'm blown away by the fact is the low rating of this story. <laughs> to be honest, uh, I think really I, I think that's terrific. I, I I love the fact that you guys rated the story higher than I did. It was really good. Look, folks, just do a Google search and find the story and read it. You will be blown away at something that is 120 years old, right? But still Absolutely. strikes all those relevant right. modern by the chords. same dude that wrote the Nutcracker, <laughs> right? Well, that takes us to our if this then that, and I think that uh, Damien, after much discussion, you have the if this then that for you this got evening. the winner. When I read this story, I thought of a 1987 film starring Melanie Griffith and. And a very minor role, Lawrence Fishburne, <laughs> called Cherry 2000. Now, Cherry 2000 Cherry was 2000. a Mad Max ripoff that basically had someone who was married to an automaton, an android wife who was absolutely perfect. They made love one night and ran a dishwasher, which got her short-circuited 
He couldn't find another <laughs> shell <laughs> manual, folks. This happens. It's in the manual. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible that he didn't. He wasn't more predictive of this, but where she could be replaced by another replicant of herself. But he had to go through some Mad Max era like difficulties with a tracker again, starring Melanie Griffith as the tracker <laughs> to get him to his replacement. What happens at the end? The question is, should you fall in love with the human being, AKA Melanie Griffith or your, you know, cherry 2000 model. And I won't tell you how it ends, but you could probably guess. It's terrible. I'm not going to lie. It's not a good film. It doesn't hold up. <laughs> but for a 1987 movie to just watch and like overlap with the themes that are present here, it's absolutely relevant. So give it a shot. Cherry 2000 starring Melanie Griffith. Yeah. I'm going to watch it next. Well, that takes us to the end of this extra long episode. We're thankful that you stayed with us. And <laughs> thanks especially to all of our continued listeners. We are grateful for you. And we are especially grateful you for you if you would rate and review this particular podcast whiskey and the weird wherever you receive your podcasts we would be grateful to have a rating as always we are thankful to dr blake brandis for bringing us the music for this podcast and if you're interested in reaching out to us damien where can they find us you the social type? Hey, hit us up on Twitter, right? <laughs> Whiskey Weird Pod at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter. If you're more of the Instagrammer, we're at Whiskey and the Weird at Whiskey and the Weird on Instagram. We spell our whiskeys with an E, and we hope you do too. If not, I'm gonna turn your best friend into an automaton, and then they're just gonna <laughs> eyes gonna pop out in your hands, and you're gonna go, "Oh God, my eyes!" And then you're gonna go to prison. And you might not think that's even that bad until you read <laughs> Freud's essay on how the eyes are symbolic of genitalia. I'm bringing you Jess, down what to are the we worst. Next? Oh my God. I don't know. I don't know after that. Uh, we are reading the secret of the scaffold by August Villiers daily Adam. Let's say it's pronounced like that. Uh, it sounds good. good. And Perfect. tonight's episode, we don't know how anything is pronounced. No, We're grateful that's not to our all of you. Strength. We're grateful to Jess for planning the next story <laughs> for us. We hope you join us here on Whiskey and the Weird. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Berg. And I'm Damian Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird. As always, keep your friends through the ages and your creeps in the pages. Good night. Good night. Bye. Well, that's a cool sound, huh? <laughs> I'm here for I you. I am hammered. <laughs> <laughs>